Furious Bastards, right? Of course. Were we? I don't know. You say of course sometimes, and I think it doesn't mean anything that of course means. It means whatever you want it to mean. Oh my gosh, we are done discussing the planes. You can't be this. You know what else I didn't bring up when we talked about the planes? What's that? Plane songs. Uh, (laughs) I'm not glad that you didn't, but I feel like it saved us an entire episode. That's true. We could have done, honestly, like two, probably three more episodes on the planes. Like, the planes could have been a Don Quixote thing where we just spent an entire four episode run on it. Yep, even though it is 175 pages. uh, Like, Eight the size? Barely a short like barely longer than a short story. Right. Yeah. Like you could classify it as a novella probably. Yeah. I I think technically you could. Yeah. What a stupid book. So dumb. Similar to how I you know, hate my brother's dog and call her stupid all the time. Right. I'm so dumb. Your stupid squishy face. (laughs) (laughs) And so I taught her to uh I was trying to teach her to lie down, because she had gotten sit pretty well. Yep. So I was teaching her to lie down and, you know, using treats and, and the whole thing. So now when she sees me, if I tell her to sit, she just automatically lies down. Oh, she's anticipating. <laughs> yes. She's too smart for her own good. Yes. <laughs> and too wanting treats for her own good, which I don't always give her anymore. Um, but, like, the so, like, you know, we go over there, she, like runs up to me and is all mm-hmm. hyper and whatever. Of course. And uh, so, like, I'll I'll try to calm her down and be like, alright, sit. Like, I'll pitch you in a minute, but you gotta sit. And then she'll, like, lie down when I tell her to sit. And I'll be like, oh, good girl, you did it! And then, immediately as soon as I say good girl, she, like, catapults <laughs> off the floor and jumps right onto my chest and face. Of course! And of it's course. like, well, you did so, it good for, like, four seconds. Sarah watched uh, a video that Joanna posted on Facebook, uh-huh. and she's, like, a professional dog trainer now. Oh, okay. And it's a video of some dogs playing together, right. and Sarah was like, oh, I don't feel so bad anymore. Because these dogs, how they were playing, looked like they were trying to kill each other. And Joanna was just like, yeah, that's how dogs play. And Sarah was like, oh, good, my dog isn't actually a vicious mongrel maniac. This is just how dogs play. And I was like, yes, that's what I've been telling you. Right. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Good. Anyway. Anyway. All right. Hello, gentle listener. And welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scott. Yeehaw! Well, that's not the energy I was going for, but I was going for sort of an accusative mean energy, so maybe being a cowboy, which is another thing we didn't talk about during the planes. Stupid cowboys. Um, how Australia is basically British Texas. Um, yeah. And how that folds into the planes. Anyway, uh, hi, We're everybody. We're not talking about that book. Yeah, we hate that book now. Well, we love that book. But, but we hate it, because we're not talking about it. Right yeah, now. because we're not talking. Anyway. Um, this is Michael and Ethan, everyone scotch. Do you want to host? You're the host. You I know host. I'm the host, but you're doing the host. I'm backing you up, that's Thank all. you, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I'm Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. Hi. Until he, first of all... No, anyway, second <laughs> of all... Um, also. He... 
until he like does the coup that he's clearly planning <laughs> he's my guest and i'm the host and i would thank him to remember that but i don't How could i forget you. could yeah you did though anyway frick um <laughs> i didn't cuss i think hi we're, as far as you know we're discussing wait do i have to introduce the scotch first i mean reintroduce it yeah so we're still drinking as we have been for the last entire month we are drinking glen Fodry. i'm not look my glass is empty yeah so is mine we're gonna get there calm oh your jets calm your jets i can't um it's supposed to be cool your jets but you know i mean calm them it's okay jets <laughs> settle okay. settle down settle down. just go go to sleep close your eyes take a deep breath breath in and hold and breath out so we are drinking glen fodry octalon or which i'm sure i butchered that scots gaelic pronunciation Speyside single malt scotch whiskey oak aged 12 years non-chill fit, filtered limited release those are all the pertinent details um I was looking at the back just to see if there are tasting notes. There really aren't tasting notes. So, like, What's when the box we say? do get... You're right. How's it going? I'm getting it. Got it. You're reaching across me, and I could have, like, helped you at all to get the box. So, the bottle says, um, This whiskey has been distilled and matured in the renowned Speyside Whiskey region of Scotland. Ian, traditional American oak casks lay undisturbed for a minimum 12 years prior to bottling. Uh, bottled at a higher strength and without chill filtering, our malt master has ensured that you can enjoy the full range of aromas and the full depth of flavors this exceptional single malt scotch whiskey has to offer. Which is very good. It's not tasting notes, which I don't really want. Does the the box have tasting notes? The box notes? says literally exactly the same thing. It has a third paragraph after that. Does it have tasting notes it in it? It does. I don't want to hear them. I won't. Do you want to hear them? No. I don't either. Um, I'm glad we both said the same thing three times in a row. Uh, I do want to say that there is a grammatical error oh, snap. in it. Did you catch it? I didn't because I was just tracing how it said the same thing. Okay. Bottled at a higher strength and without chill filtering. Comma! There's no comma! Not only is there no comma, so there's that clause. Oh, Our and then, yeah, malt the, master. The malt master was bottled and distilled. <laughs> So we are drinking a human person. They're committing murder and admitting it. (laughs) And having us drink the murder. We're drinking the dead man. So he's a real good tasting dead man, though, I would say. Um, Don't get ahead of ourselves. We have to rate the scotch I know. Next episode, we'll rate the scotch. I'm a dirty bird. All right. So I'm going to pour this. Perfect. Well, perfect would be if it had both sweet vermouth and dry vermouth. Oh, just per- okay. Stop. What? Stop, you cocktail snob. You said it. Ugh. You said the thing. Don't ugh me. Ugh. I will beat you right up. So, in this dynamic, you are the abusive husband, and I am the poor damsel of a wife who can't support herself in this man-run culture. Down um, with the patriarchy. I hate you. Are you already starting to talk about Solus because we're not there yes, yet? Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're not there yet. We need Karen to come in and read the rules. Hey, Karen, come in and read the rules. Karen, what are the rules? 
Rule 1. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule 2. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thanks, Karen. We we appreciate you. Um, Also, if you're the abused wife, and I'm the abusive husband... Who is Gerald Murnane in this relationship? <laughs> the because buffer. We, we did establish last episode that, that we, we are, are both thruple. related to him. Yes, a thruple, <laughs> which is a real word, uh, or at least it is now. Yeah. If Shakespeare can uh, coin eyeball, we can coin thruple. I don't think we coined thruple. I'm fairly certain. Is that certain. a thing? That I am, I, I You're more hip heard with it the youth on like Crazy Ex Girlfriend. Okay. At the very least. Okay. Which I only saw the first two seasons, and that's enough for me. Is there more than that? I think so. Okay. Um. Have you watched Jane the Virgin? No. Okay. I haven't either. Okay. So. I'm okay was, with that. That was our attempt at being relevant, ladies yep. and gentlemen. There we go. Snapchat. <laughs> That's my <laughs> Oh my gosh. Alright. So we're gonna clink our glasses, let make the rules go into effect. Exactly. Um I have to think of a of a relevant salute <laughs> now. Um hashtag bay. Snapchat. <laughs> You and me saying schlank. <laughs> Which we both said multiple yeah, times. More than once. Yep. Well, because you said it, and then I thought it was funny, so I said so it. So you said it, and so it became a thing. It became a thing. And uh, um, that's all she wrote. All right, Michael. Yep. So a few episodes ago, when yep. we introduced Solus, yeah. we, and by we, I mean you. Yep. Now, I want to preface everything we say here. Yeah. Because the rhetorical situation is very important. Okay. The rhetorical situation for those of us who didn't go through 11 years of um, undergrad and grad level rhetoric learning. Yep. 
Larnin. Larnin. Uh, the rhetorical situation just means sort of who your audience is and how you shape what you're saying for your audience. Yep. And as far as we know, Gail Carriger, the author of Solus, yes, is listening. As far as we know. Um, or at least, what did she do? She followed us on... She replied to and retweeted my tweet. Your when tweet? When I announced that I began reading this book. Okay. So, like, for all that we know... And I'm, I want I want us to be very cautious here, because we've made the mistake in the past of getting to an episode where maybe the author was listening, <laughs> and then saying that Ellen Foster could beat up Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yep. And I do still feel bad about that. Even though it's true? Right. Okay, stop, please. <laughs> Neil, I feel if like... you're listening, and also, Gail, if you're listening and, like, you have the red phone that corrects, connects directly to Neil, I want it noted that I didn't say it this time. <laughs> yeah. Only Michael did. But also, you agree, correct, that Ellen Foster could oh my feel gosh. beat up Kate Why? Gail I was trying also. to get us out of a hole, and I was trying to prevent us from getting into See, another hole. What my and point all is, I've done is dug us deeper into the original my hole. My point is, this is not a, a, a burn on Neil Gaiman or Gil Carriger. It's just talking about who Ellen Foster is, that she could beat up both of I them. I mean, she is basically Captain Marvel, yes. Right. But See, we're the relevant. point is, Snapchat. yeah, boom, boom, uh, <laughs> boom Snapchat. What did I, what did I tell Steven? Uh, hashtag Bay. Yeah, thank you. Snapchat, <laughs> hashtag Bay, which I think is a bit of slang that went out of fashion like four and a half years ago. Um, this is bad. This okay. is a bad show. This is a bad podcast. Stop listening right now. Everyone get off. Go away. But like, uh, get off the podcast, not like... Never mind. This is a Stop. this is a family Just podcast. Quit while you're ahead. This is a bad family podcast. We don't put the explicit tag on this. I know we don't, and that's why I'm being not explicit. So <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> I would like to have not done that. But I was so good that I couldn't. <laughs> oh. Oh man, okay. Okay, right. where are we at? Yep. Um, uh, we're, we're talking this about offending the author. Anyway, the point is, Gail Carriger, we know you might be listening, and we do appreciate you, and nothing we say is intended. Can be used against us in a court of law. <laughs> yes, we're reading our own Miranda rights. I was going to say, nothing we say is intended to be offensive. Right. Only appreciative and like in the spirit of friendly critique you know gail character and should own know if she's reaction. listening and any other listener should know if they're listening that, that we are is... two very white very boys well that i was also going to say that we recorded two episodes prior to this with the same substance that we are consuming now so i would like to say that you just lost I don't think I did. Yeah, that's why I said I would like to say. <laughs> You'd like to, but you can't. I Sorry. I don't know if I... Because we've had our discussions about violating the spirit rather than the letter of right, the law. Right, but we also pointed out the fact that we admire those who can violate the spirit without violating the letter. Yeah, we did do that. And we and can only enforce the letter, I mean, the also you did help 
me make the point to Gail Carragher, who's definitely listening, probably. Right. Um, I'm helpful. So I have to let you off on this one. Barely. Thank you. I'm going to say, though, if you do violate the spirit and not the letter again, uh-huh. I'm going to, like, combine these two into one loss. I don't know if that's how that works. Well, well see. it's going to be. What if I violate the spirit of a different rule? Well, that's what I'm saying. It, it's like it, violating the spirit but not the letter is like a half violation, so two halves make But a if it's a half violation of one and a half violation of the other, you can't combine it's those. Still, You'd have to tell it's me what rule I into one violation. See, I'm, I'm done with this. We're about yeah, 15 minutes in, and we haven't we haven't let the listener read this book. Read the book. <laughs> what book, Ethan? Soulless by Gail Carriger. Yes, exactly. Unless it's Gail um, Carriger. I want to point out. Briefly, I want. I want to point out myself yeah, that we have used both pronunciations, Carriger and Carriger interchangeably. We've, and we, I think, both said them both. Yeah, which means that we have been wrong. Exactly. And we, have we do wrong. apologize for that also. Yes. We we always apologize to the authors on our podcast. Um, we do. I do want to point out, though, that if Go you on. find this book on a bookshelf in Barnes Noble or any other bookstore, the big, bright, pink-spined cover of Solace by Car- Gail Carriger, illustrated by Jensine Eckwall, you will find it autographed by the author. She confirmed on Twitter that she autographed every single copy of this, which is insane. That is insane. Uh, so you will find an autographed copy of this. Find it. Read it. Did she confirm it to you, or was it... Did it you replied do to me on Twitter. Okay, cool. Yep. No, that's awesome. Something like 100,000 um, copies, 10,000 copies, something like that. Yeah, you gotta you gotta edit your zeros correctly there. Some there was an insane still, amount of zeros in that but number. Ten thousand or a hundred thousand is at both that point equally like you get to, to ten thousand and what's a hundred thousand? Yeah, that's to that. that's fair. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so is it because this is like a first edition hardcover kind this of thing? This is not a first edition. This is a second edition, I think. Because the book, let me look at the publishing page. I'm looking at it, so it looks like. The original text was from was copyrighted in 2009. Yes. But this edition was copyrighted in 2018. 2018. Yes. Presumably with more this illustrations. This is the first or illustrated hardcover edition. Okay. Oh, okay. So it's a like a fancy illustrated first edition. Yes. Okay. Cool. There you go. I mean, I'll yeah, I'm I'm super happy with it either way. But right. uh, yeah. Now the, the reader, who, the listeners, read it. Have so. they? Did we pause? Yeah, we did. Okay. I'll say we did. Okay. I'm the well, editor. Well, you're, the, you're the editor, so... So it counts. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I... Wow, we just talked about a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You have to, like, point it out. Yeah. Uh, could you have... We, I could have not. I could have gone over it, but anyway. All right, this book, Soulless, by Gail Carriger. Or Carragher. Or Carragher. We're going to say both pronunciations forever, just so that we're right at least once. To, to make sure that we're at least... You know what? For all we know, we both got it wrong on both accounts. That's true. We could we could. It both could be, be something completely different. It could be like Xandar or something. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Anyway. I know it doesn't... Anyway. <laughs> I would like to ask you, Michael. So you picked this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you picked it... Now, to oversimplify the story you told, yep. whatever, four or five podcasts ago, um, 
you more or less picked it at random. I picked it judging the book by its cover. Literally. Quite literally. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. Which, and I will say, to your credit, you picked a book that I had been sort of meaning to read for a while. Cool. And you picked a, a beautiful illustrated edition. Yep. And you picked one that was autographed by the author. Yep. Um, so all that's contributing all factors. Very cool. How do you feel about this pick now that you have read it? Um, okay, so now that I have read it, I don't know that it's a pick that I would pick for this podcast specifically. Okay. Um, not that I regret reading it, just that I don't think it's normally the type of book we read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would tend to agree. Right? What, it, what, it, like, specifically, why do you, do you feel that way? Um, I don't want to say it's because it's girly. Right. See, okay, we're dancing around this, except for the part where I sort of shouted it on the microphone a little bit ago, I think. Um, I'm at the point okay. where minute-to-minute memory is a questionable thing for some where reason. Where podcast amnesia occurs within the same podcast episode? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> podcast amnesia and not something I'm not allowed to talk about. Of course. Um, yeah, we are two white male yep. heterosexual boys. Yep. I don't know that we are the intended audience for this book. Yeah, exactly. Which is perfectly fine. Like, it's, yeah, I'm, that's fine. I, it, actually, that part of this book is almost what makes me the happiest about featuring it on this podcast. Quite so. And, and that's exactly what I wanted to say about this. So if I had to characterize this book and describe it in as brief of terms as possible, I would say it's some sort of blend amongst, not between, amongst um, Jane Austen, like Pride and Prejudice being very featurely heavied in this book. <laughs> being what now? <laughs> very featurely heavied. Thank you. Um, as, uh, you know, I would discuss passages of this with my wife, and she would say, oh, so it's Pride and Prejudice. Right, yes. but with vampires. But with that. Um, and that. Um, and... Steampunk. With what? Yeah, what you said. Um, I didn't say steampunk. You, no, you didn't say steampunk. The thing before steampunk. Uh, that uh, and books? also Pages making Queen it? Victoria a character. Um, so, yes, no, it's quite not the sort of thing that is aimed directly at us. It's a romance with supernatural elements and Jane Austen. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, like... And a mystery somehow. Yeah, somehow. <laughs> no, like, one of the things that I uh, th- initially thought about a lot as I was reading through this book um, is actually just the fact that, like, steampunk is a real weird jo- genre. Super weird! Um, and it's, it like, fascinatingly weird. And, like, I adore steampunk. I have read not probably as extensively as plenty of other people have read in it, but I've read a decent amount of um, what gets characterized as steampunk. You've read um, far more than I have. I don't know that I've read much at all. Right. Literally, like, over your shoulder where you're sitting in this room, I have uh, Paul... Is it Paul DeFilippo's The Steampunk Trilogy? There you go. Um, Top top shelf there. Sort of in the middle. Yeah. College of Magics on the right. Um, 
gotta, you knock the remote down. I knock the remote down. That's okay. okay. This is a book show. Yep. Um, which I have not read, but I've been meaning to. But, but it's there. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so like I've read, I've read a fair amount. Wait. The the middle book in here is called Hot and Tots. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, okay, so I did my senior English thesis paper when I was in undergraduate. I did it on sort of a theoretical concept that I I certainly didn't come up with it. I guess I expanded on it or redefined it for my own purposes. Specifically, the concept of world building, right? Yes. Um, and so world building starts out as a uh, concept within like f fantasy novels, right? So it's yep. the idea that um, like Tolkien most famously did, you for you you create a world for your story to inhabit, yes. and it has history and geography and um, various things along similar lines. Uh, but it's it you know your story theoretically inhabits maybe like ten percent or less of this this world. But the theory is, a maybe you write other stories in this world and they explore different aspects of the world building, and b like you you know even if it doesn't make it into the story, all the world building you've done provides sort of a rich background for the story to inhabit, yeah. right? Um, so. At a certain point in studying literature, I realized that basically all of literature you could describe as world building. Um, because to create, say, a novel of any kind, um, you're using pre-made or pre-described worlds uh -huh. that you pull into your novel. So. Say you're writing the most realistic of real novels about, I don't know, the Midwest in the 21st century, but you, you know you're you're not, and this is maybe just me sort of quote unquote discovering how fiction works forever at all times, <laughs> but you know, in a very realistic novel, you're gonna describe, you're gonna say, okay, so they got home from work, they got out of their car, they went into their apartment. Um, but those concepts, work, story. car, cool story, bro. apartment, ignoring you, <laughs> um, those concepts have preconceived um, ideas attached to them. Yeah. So, you know, and especially if you're going into, like, the, uh, oh, I forgot the word, but, like, the uh, attenuated things associated with any given word, so, like, you you know you got home from work so that tells me you have a steady job um you got out of your car so you can at least afford car payments mm -hmm. but you go into your apartment which tells me that you're at a point in your life where you're renting rather than paying a mortgage or you have a house or some more permanent dwelling right mm -hmm. so like it occurred to me at a certain point that all sort of like concepts that you'd use to build a story out of are these like nexus points of meaning um, against which you build a fiction. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, if you had to literally describe every single thing in any given piece of fiction to the point that your reader understood it if they didn't before, mm -hmm. you're 
you would you would be writing Tristram Shandy except boring. Sure. Your work would be a thousand pages long and you wouldn't have any plot. Right. Um so out of that you can if you sort of reverse it from this very like detailed um set of uh uh nexus points what you can build out of that is this idea that you can be more and more daring about what people already understand and use that to build a more mm-hmm. complex story on top of it mm-hmm. um and i think that so to go back to like the epic fantasy example right um you know i it used to bother me like as a kid like okay tolkien like he discovered these works from middle earth and maybe he translated them into our language but like you know the lord of the rings is supposed to take place in like pre 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 history before all of our histories but it's this world but like how did they have swords how did they know to have swords? Mm-hmm. And that's let alone when you get into like some steampunk works that like they take place in an alternate earth, but like they have trains or steamboats yep. or whatever. Um, the idea that a work can't exist without its audience. Exactly. And so at a certain point, what occurred to me is that what steampunk does is basically what epic fantasy does, except it changes the like era that it's stealing from sure so epic fantasy relies on this set of like assumptions and knowledge that we have of the middle ages specifically Mm -hmm. the european middle ages Mm -hmm. um now there's works coming out and especially more recently ones that sort of critique that or don't don't exist in that nexus but historically that's where epic fantasy goes it's like takes a bunch of concepts that you think you understand from the Middle Ages and builds a whole world out of that. Right. Um, and steampunk sort of does the same thing, except with the Victorian era rather than the Middle Ages. Right. Um, which is interesting. One thing that's interesting to me is the fact that most of the things in this book do come from the Victorian era. Yes. Um, do you know when, like, do you know when the first, and this is a genuine question, not a leading question, do you know when the first werewolf stories came about? I don't, actually. I don't either. I want to say that, like, the term lycanthropy was used in, like, horror stories written in, in, like, the 19th century. Sure. But I don't know how far back that goes. I mean, the whole idea of a wolfman sort of thing has existed a long time. Yeah. And, like, werewolf itself is Germanic. Right. Um, coming from German myths and things. Right. So, I don't know beyond that. Sure. More but, specifically. Um, vampires, of course, you know, most famously go back to Dracula, which came Bram out Stoker, in the 19th century. Yep. Um, but even there, he was drawing on a long tradition of the same. He was drawing myth. on a long mythological tradition, yep. but even even in literature, um, vampires predate him. Yep. Um, you have Carmilla that yep. Sheridan Lefano yep. wrote. I mm-hmm. want to say like probably thirty years or thirty or forty years before. That was Dracula. more of yeah. That was like Regency period sort of. Yeah, I was gonna say like mid nineteenth century, roughly. Um, supposedly the first literary vampire was a work from, like, the early 1800s, 
Oh, and I thought I could remember the name, but I can't. But it was a satire on Lord Byron. It was... Oh, what are you... Um, I know what you're talking about. Uh, I don't remember the name. Polidori? Was that it? Or was that a later one? I don't... That's not the one I'm thinking of. Anyway, what I know is that one of Lord Byron's, like, servants, or, you know, like, manservants Mm -hmm. or something... Well, uh, Byron himself wrote such a story. Did he? Yep. Okay, The and I don't know where I got this, so I'm perfectly willing to, you know, say that it might be just complete bunk, but the understanding that I had was y. that it was... What? Spelled with a Y. Bink? No. <laughs> um. Oh, Palidori? No, Byron oh, wrote thank you. a story... About such mythological creatures, spelled with a Y. About what mythological creatures? Uh, the ones that turn into bats and suck blood. Oh, uh, um, mad cow disease. Sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you started saying sure before I got to the end of whatever <laughs> BS I was saying. Uh, yeah. No, I want to say, so the, the, like, myth that I've heard is that it was one of Byron's, like, manservants or or hangers-on or like one of the literary group that gathered around him Mm -hmm. towards the end of his life um who wrote vampire with a y and it was like a loosely disguised version of lord byron gotcha um well what i'm thinking of as far as what byron wrote was in connection with mary shelley's frankenstein that whole legend and whether it's true or not or how true it is or not yeah. is up to debate when they all gathered at the same house and all debated or uh, had a competition to tell the scariest story. Right, and that supposedly Frankenstein came that out That Frankenstein of. came out of. And Byron Excuse wrote me. this one at that time. And then Mary Shelley being embarrassed went into her room because she couldn't think of something and then went into a trance and came out and told Frankenstein. Um, I've never heard the f- trance thing. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah, that's... that's I mean, it, it makes sense with this whole crowd that they were running with. Yeah. That's the myth, sort of myth that they would love that she went into a trance and came out yeah. and told this whole Frankenstein story. Sure. But Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those things where it's like it feels like it could be real in a certain sense. And it also feels like it could just be the myth that grew out of the, mm-hmm. the circumstances. Um, I do want to say... Okay, I've thought of one of them. I was going to say that there are a few things about mm-hmm. um, this story that do, like... So the author, in a certain sense, is writing a very sort of fluffy, steampunky, you know, adventure romp of a story. Yes. Um... But there are a few things that do indicate that she knows exactly what her source material is <laughs> and exactly what she's doing with it. Um, and I, I was paging through. I remembered one of them. That's not where I want to go right now, though. Okay. But I forgot. Oh, okay. So I was talking about world building, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like, I want to connect world building with um, something I encountered in film school. Or not film school, but the one film school class I took in my English master's degree, um, where we talked about how all, supposedly anyway, all film genres go through three periods. 
Um, yeah. And the periods are primitive, classical, and revisionist. Um, okay. And it's easiest probably to talk about it with westerns as far as film genres go. Okay. So primitive period is where you don't even necessarily know it's a genre yet. You're just telling a bunch of these stories that are similar, you know, all at the same time. Sure, and the similarities start to con- start gradually to conglomerate into yeah, a genre. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you see this in, like, the 20s and 30s. You see it with Westerns. In, like, the late 40s and the 50s, you see it with, like, film noir. Sure. Um, in comics, for example, you you could argue you see it with, superhero stories in like the 30s and 40s yeah very you know in the very beginning um so like you know people bouncing ideas off each other and also stealing from each other like you start to codify this set of of um tropes so then what that leads into is the classical period where sort of like often your best examples of a given genre or at least your classic examples of one are like they come from the classical period usually um so it's like the most like not necessarily cliched but the most like uh classical types of you know examples of a given film so like with westerns you have stagecoach in 1939 Mm -hmm. um you have like uh the searchers um if it seems like i'm naming only john ford films that's because i studied john ford a bunch in high school and college um you have like high noon you have all these like Mm -hmm. uh you know westerns in this in the classical period that are like your central like lodestone westerns right? right so then um once you have enough of these and the sort of audience gets sick of them or like generations move on what you enter is a revisionist period um and a revisionist period basically relies on you knowing or the audience knowing the tropes of the genre yep um so it's like in westerns it's like westerns that only make sense if you've seen other westerns right um, so in Western specifically, you have like uh, the movie Maverick that with Mel Gibson from the 90s mm-hmm. um, or like, oh, the one with Danny Glover, the, Silverado. Um, yes. Another 90s Western. Yep. Um, you know, mm-hmm. these these Westerns mostly only make sense if you've seen other Westerns because they're violating or like complicating the things that other westerns are doing which can sort of only work if you're familiar with other westerns right right? um so in a sense i think that steampunk as a genre is the revisionist period for a bunch of other genres okay or it's like a nexus of revisionist periods gotcha um because to be like and again, whether you're like a white male or someone who this book was actually intended for, sure. I think to get the most enjoyment out of Solas, you would be familiar with several other genres and what you're specific saying. works. And I, I track that, and I would tend to agree. It's the nexus of, you know, Victorian uh, Regency. 
supernatural yeah. mystery like, like, romance. You know, your wife's reaction yep. was very accurate in this vein of okay, you if you're familiar with Jane Austen, you'll understand better what's going on. Yep. But also if you're familiar with werewolf stories, if you're familiar yep. with vampire stories, if you're familiar with like Sherlock Holmes like yep. late Victorian slash Edwardian detective yes. stories. Very um, much so. And, you know, even some of the other, like, you know, if you were familiar with, I feel like, the life of, like, Marie Curie. Um, sure. Certain other, like, nonfiction stories. Like, so it's it's this weird nexus of a bunch of different um, things that you have to be familiar with that really supports my, like, uber theory that I've had for many, many years that our culture as a whole is in a revisionist period. Okay. And we're sort of so familiar with so many different narratives that, like, Solus is constructed out of a bunch of different narratives. Sure. Like, imagine if you were um, an alien who spoke English but was not familiar with the history of Earth's literature. Uh-huh. And you, this was the text that you were given. Wow. Okay. Yep, that would be bizarre. Right? Uh-huh. Except it doesn't seem all... That part of it, anyway, doesn't seem all that bizarre to us. Sure. So yep. that's, like, the sort of stark difference between yeah. The, yeah. the two. Okay, okay. I follow. Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting way to look at this. Um, and definitely that is kind of the way... It, when you read this, it, it's kind of... To, to kind of take the flip side of that, it's kind of easy to forget that it's several of these genres all at the same time. Yeah, which I think is actually, like, possibly the, like, biggest single uh, instance of respect that I have for Gail Carriger as an author. Like, I could, I could be reading this one day and think of it in terms of a romance novel. I could yeah. read it another day and think of it in terms of uh, a, a Victorian sort of comedy of manners. Yes, and which is another thing I didn't mention as far as like the genres it's constructed out of is definitely that like Oscar Wilde importance yes! of being earnest. Very much so. Um, definitely very That's much. That's in here too. The, there's like that fin de siècle thing of uh -huh. the end of the century when comedies of manners became a thing because partly because like the whole of society felt that it was in a very decadent period and nope. that you know wit and um bodiness and affairs but like hidden under a layer of sophistication like yes that was life and and this like it, it, it's also very conscious of being in the 20th century or 20th century wow <laughs> 21st century it's i'm like, relevant snapchat it, um, um, hashtag Bay. It's very conscious of being in the 21st century and in the 19th century. <laughs> yes, because like it takes those things that you would think of as being kind of hidden or or um, just suggested, and it does verge on the explicit. Yeah, except during the uh, like physical romance scenes in which it dives right into being the explicit. Right. Like, and like, at the same time, like, with that too, though, it's very much explicit in the 
um, tradition of 20th and 21st century romance novels. Sure. That's the sort of explicit that it is. I did say sure, but can you tell me what you mean? Like, not that I've read a lot of it, romance novels, because I really haven't. Sure. But from what I know of it secondhand, this is exactly the sort of explicit that it is, that it's not going to be erotica. Right, where you're, like, literally getting down and dirty and describing, like, specific body right. parts and what they're doing so right. much. But you have no doubt in your mind what is being described. Yeah. No one could have any doubt in their yeah. mind what is being described. And it's not like a uh, Shakespeare or even a Lawrence Stern where it's... It's not couched in anything. Yeah, it's couched or it's it's sort of described in, like, fruit metaphors. I'm thinking of um, when we were... What class were we in? I don't even remember. Oh, that she were an open arse and yep. thou a pauper and pear. Yep. Um, no, the... Um, uh, and ours it was, was a, a type of book. Who wrote it? In How to read day. literature by like a like a professor. How to read literature like a professor. Where like I have a lot of problems are, with that book. Oh, I do on. too. But I'm thinking of two specific chapters in there that are one after. But another. also, you got your whole senior thesis kind of from a chapter. Kind that of book. from I did. It get one. <laughs> it. <laughs> um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Word order strong is have. Yeah, no, Do so one chapter was everything is about sex. Yes. And then the next chapter was except sex. Yes. So that's kind of what I'm thinking of in this regard that okay. everything is about sex except sex. Sure. So the sex scenes, what are they about? What are they about? What are they about, Ethan? I'm asking you, Michael. I You're think, the one who came up with this very good and point. And I think that's that I exactly, hadn't thought of at all. No, and that's exactly, I think, why this falls into the category of a romance genre, even while it spans other genres. That it falls into that category because the sex scenes are kind of just about sex. Huh. Okay, yeah. I thought you were... I did think, like... Okay, and which so is, the sex which is, scenes... Which is part of my problem with that how to read literature like a professor thing yeah. is he doesn't allow exceptions really yeah and that like a sex scene could just be about sex yeah and it kind of depends on the genre and in a romance genre i think it is just about sex yeah and that's like i don't know you've just like whipsawed me between a bunch of opinions just Good. now okay um that, that was my goal yeah so finally we're... as this book kind of whipsaws us between several different genres yeah fair um, Boom! So also, we're finally... Snapchat. I'm relevant. Yeah, okay, hashtag <laughs> bay. Um, that's the only relevant sounding thing I can possibly say, and I do even know that it's not relevant. Anyway, what the f flip was I saying? You were whipsawed. Yeah. Okay, so, because my original opinion was just like, okay, these sex scenes were really just about sex, and like the the uh, snarky but clever, but like they're played thing for I was going too, to ask you, but was how the epilogue went for you? Okay. Um, the probably most explicit like sex scene sure. in the book, um, which was mostly to like like give you the crap. Sure. But, hashtag Bay. But um, I don't know. Now that you said that, it's like, there 
is a fair amount going on in the sex scenes. Sure. And like Well, there there's character development and and such. Well, not only involved. that, there's like a power struggle sure. in all of them. Yes. And I, I that's part of it. Also, like I think um this is written by a female author and I think that's part of it too, just like that whole sort of um cliche about for men sex is a quick thing, for women it's a long thing. And oh, therefore sure. the payoff doesn't come in this book until three hundred, four hundred pages in. Yeah. Um that was something I was gonna mention is the fact that all of the sex scenes are interrupted until yep. the prologue. And yep. even in the prologue it's, Epilogue. Or yeah, epilogue. I know what my Latin roots are. They're probably Greek roots though, aren't they? Yeah, those are yeah. Um anyway, even then it's like if you were looking for a real, real, like, explicit sex scene, well, and you that's wouldn't just necessarily it. Like, get it in the It's still not ex- super explicit. Yeah. Like, it, it, it is. There are some... Like, to Victorian sensibilities, it definitely is. Yeah, for even sure. Even to, like, 1950s sensibilities, it super is. But, but even to, like, D.H. Lawrence, who did write his novels over a hundred years ago, it's right. not. It's not, exactly. Like, you n- you have no question what's happening. No one right. can doubt what's and happening. And what's about to happen. Exactly. But it's also... It, there There is still something left unsaid. Yeah. And I think somewhere in there is the real value of this. Yeah. That something in there, even as explicit as it gets, and I'm not just talking about the sex scenes, which which are really sex scenes is almost saying too much, Right. is where something is left unsaid, something is hidden, something is still behind there, which we haven't pointed out yet so far that this book is the first in a series. Right. um, A quintuplet series Um, so far, at least. Soulless, yeah. changeless, blameless, heartless, timeless um, is the Parasol Protectorate so far. This is the first book in the Parasol Protectorate. Um, and I haven't read any more of those. My brother Nick has read the second, which oh, really? he read accidentally before he read the first. <laughs> um, has he read both then? Uh, I don't think he's read this one, Okay, actually. But th- that whole point of something left unsaid could be said in a sequel. But also right. maybe not. I don't know. Right. And I get the sense that that's well, that's part of the world building is what I'm thinking of. Like sure. leaving things unsaid to reflect back on our previous book, if it's not said, it's a potential. So therefore the world is bigger. <laughs> right. And I, I get the sense that there are like four or five different genres going on in this book. Yep. Um partly because of what steampunk is as a genre. Um, but I get the sense that the genre it's least interested in is the, like, part of it that is about explicit sex. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, if I had to make... And I I might read whatever the next one is. I know I just looked at it, but I can't Changeless. remember. Changeless? Changeless, probably. Yes. Um, I, I very well might read Changeless, especially since you've tricked me into reading Solus. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, I I very well might read it, um, but if I ha- but I haven't yet, and if I had to predict it based on not having read it, read it, I would <laughs> guess that like 
we're maybe six months or a year into the marriage yeah. of the two main characters. Did we um, let the reader read this before we spoil it? I think we did. Maybe. I'm why assuming we, we did. Why are we so bad at remembering? We are so bad at this. Yeah, but why? I don't know. What did you... Did you do something? Did I do anything? Did I do something? I don't know. Oh, uh, that was a very bad trap. Anyway, um, I think we I think we let them read it. Read the book. Just read it. Like honestly, you saw the title of the book in the title of this episode. Yeah, really, read it's that. your fault if we didn't let you read it. It is. Um. So, what was I saying? You were talking about reading the sequel. Yeah. So, like, my prediction just for the sequel, just based on the data in this book, and not having read the sequel or looked at it, my prediction would be, we're like six months or a year into their marriage. Yeah. And some other case comes up, and, like, the wife has to convince the husband to let her, you know, come along on this case, even though she would be a big, good asset, or she investigates it secretly but what i doubt is that there's a whole lot of focus even in the next book on like the explicitness of the sex scenes any more than there is in this one yes i think it definitely gets toned down in the next book and then books after that yeah um yeah you know we're introduced to queen victoria at the end of this book she's a character in this book she comes in and recruits um um, Alexia, the yeah. main character yeah, of this yeah. book, to be basically the quote-unquote parasol protectorate, even though that phrase never occurs in this entire book. Right. Which is maybe one of my favorite things about this. I mean, like, it's one of those like typical origin story things. Yeah, exactly. Like, this one is the origin story. This book story. is the origin story. Yep, this is Iron so, like, Man 1. It's like, though you haven't seen it yet, it's like... Uh, Captain Marvel not actually being called Captain Marvel quite explicitly throughout the course of her whole first movie. Sure, sure. I hope that wasn't too much of a spoiler. Uh, the whole movie's ruined for me. I'm never going to see it. Yeah, well, I she does I don't feel the need to also see go back and fix all of Infinity War in this movie. Oh, of course. I knew it. Yeah, so yep. Yep. you don't need to see it And or... she makes sure that her father and mother meet at prom and get right. together. And also she does save Batman's parents yep. from dying. Yep, <laughs> of course. Uh, she guess. just fixes everything. Yep, of course, naturally. Yeah, no, that and that's exactly what I expect from the sequel to this. Right. That it's less explicit, There, it's more of a mystery, like, getting into the, more of the meat of things. Yeah. Like, and maybe that's something, we're getting close to the end of this episode, but maybe that's something we can discuss in the next episode here about the mystery in this novel. Yeah. Because it is a mystery novel, even as it yeah. is a romance novel and a really, steampunk novel. The and only all reason of those things. The only reason that this that, novel is not one that, like the planes, we could just say, it, we don't know the plot. You don't know the plot. The plot is not the point. Really, the only reason for that is the mystery plot of this novel. Right. It's not the only thing going on at all. No. But it's the thing that drives us from page one to page 300 and 98. Yeah. Almost yeah. 400. Yeah. Almost 400 pages. 
even though I did read it in two days. No, it's super quick read. Um, with, I, Again, it not... isn't a vote and it's against it. Yeah. It's like an easy read, which for this book is a good thing. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And, and that mystery is exactly what drives through the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but even still, it's not a mystery that, like in Agatha Christie, the reader can solve it. Right. Before the end. This one... I don't know that you can, necessarily. I don't know. I feel like I predicted most of the mystery before the end. I predicted some of it. Uh-huh. But the specifics of it, I absolutely did not. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's and I don't know if you can. A result of that, like, somewhat uncomfortable marriage between, like, a fantastic, like, a speculative and fiction genre... And that's part of it, too. And that a it, hard mystery genre. It, it assumes that you've read these other genres. Exactly. And so, to solve the mystery, you need to know the genres... Which is a very meta thing for it to do. Right. Though, uh, I'm tempted to say, if you did know the genres, you could solve the mystery, or at least most of it. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, Anything else you wanted to say about this novel this episode? This episode, I don't want to start anything else, because it's going to take too much time. It's going to take too much time. Yeah. I agree. So, we'll... this, This whole episode has felt like one big, gigantic tease. To the next episode. Well, we are teases. It's true. To each other, to Gerald Murnane, to Nat. To Gail Carriger. To Gail Carriger, to Neil Gaiman. Not to Ellen Foster, because she could kick our butts. But Kate Gibbons. Yeah. And also to anyone else who is listening to this, which I doubt is anyone. (laughs) So... Except, well, yeah, I said Nat already, though. Yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah, okay, stop trying to curry favor for yourself. Um, I've already won. Have you? We're rooming together next year. Uh, <laughs> gotta plant a cigarette in your room now, <laughs> as usual. Um, gentle listener, we are going to discuss Gail Carriger's novel, Soulless. One more episode. Please feel free to read along and give us your feedback. You can go to tapestryradio.org, go to the contact section, put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Uh, On Twitter, tweet us at at @roomwithscotch. You can join us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. Apply. You'll probably be approved unless you prove to be a bad bad person Mm -hmm. or not a person. Basically, a bad person or not a person are the only two disqualifying ones. And you've heard us, so, like, you understand what our threshold for bad is. Yeah. Um, please uh, submit your homework if you want us to do it. We won't do it well. We won't do it in a way that if you plagiarize it won't get you both an F grade and also put in jail. But yep. we will have fun. So uh-huh. please feel free to do that. Uh, if you like our podcast, this podcast, um, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. We have Intermission, our audio drama podcast, Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon United tabletop RPG real play podcast. Good enough. <sighs> um, <laughs> it's a good podcast. I was a guest on it once. Michael has very exacting standards that I'm not willing to take my clothes off and meet. I'm um, never a perfectionist. 
So, Normal yeah. Normal, I draw you like one of my French girls. Thank you um, for drawing me like one of your French girls. Uh, also, please read, listen to, I don't know why I said read, here's Johnny. They have our, a blog, you can read it. You can, but also listen to their podcast, here's Johnny. Um, they do horror movies and uh, video games. They're very good. They treat these sort of horror artifacts as like expressions of art, which mm-hmm. um, is very valid, and they do it well. Uh, and then read my webcomic, Pin Porter Girl Detective, a mm-hmm. fairy tale noir uh, detective webcomic starring a 12-year-old girl detective um, who is almost certainly smarter than I will ever be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a good one. Pinporterdetective.com or just Google Pinporter Girl Detective. It's good. Thank you. I appreciate your input. Uh, anything else from you, Michael? Nope. Uh, so just remember, until next time, it's our party. And Ellen Fest Foster will make us cry if we want. <laughs> Bye.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects. Of oblivion. Of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our to yours.